Hello and welcome to another edition of Mind Rolling. My name is David Silver and along with the great Raghu Marcus, we're here to inform, educate and extrapolate but not pontificate, correct? Or procrastinate? I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm a professional at that. No, okay. no, 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 no. Ah, good day, David. How you doing? Here we well, are today. back. It's hot July day. Yes, yes. Um, right off the bat, I want to uh, say one thing that's been happening that is really gratifying, and and I want to thank everybody. And by the way, at the end of this show, we're going to thank the rest of the people who participated in the Indiegogo campaign. Uh, and uh, what's been happening, and, you know, we're back on the handling circuit here uh, about asking people to continue to support what we're doing here at Mind Rolling and at MindPod Network. And uh, what seems to be happening on its own volition is, is uh, some of you out there are... Uh, donating small amounts of money, five, ten, maybe twenty dollars, but uh on a monthly basis. And that, if we get enough people doing that, uh it will give us uh a real foundation going forward, uh after especially after the Indiegogo campaign when we'll be able to develop the online courses and the uh MindPod app. Uh, so this is a really uh, wonderful way to support us, and and at five dollars a month, I like nine dollars though. That's that's kind of what we do at Ramdas uh, over there at Ramdas and Love Server Member Foundation because it's the sacred number nine out of one hundred eight. But five dollars is just as good. So uh, think about that as a way to support uh, what's going on here and this uh, increasing um, expansion. For the network and, and of course, uh, for what David and I are doing here at Mind, Mind Rolling. Did you see that article, David? Actually, I, I, I think I sent it to you, how there's now festivals, podcast festivals are going on. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah that's, that's something that we've been actually thinking about uh, uh, starting uh, in New York and getting together with some people we're talking to who have a venue uh, and we've got to get that going uh, because what we'd love to do is get some of the MindPod teachers and some other people from other fields uh, of, of life, from social action to environmentalism to, uh, to just you know, some celebrities that are interested in consciousness and put everybody together uh, on stage uh, over a couple of nights. That would be a, a fun thing to do. So that's something we're thinking about. Anybody got any ideas out there? Of course, we'd love to hear from you on that. And moving forward about some of our uh, Amazon recommendations. Yeah, we're back on the Amazon truck because we let you off last week. That's right. We, we did, didn't say, a, didn't say word. a word. You know, because we thought enough. But it, also the subject matter was very serious and it just seemed a little weird to be advertising around it. But, you know, uh, we're back. So what do you, you call uh, this? I have, I have a few recommendations. You have a few. Should we just go through with that or not? Can I start with mine? Because it's got, I got a funny thing, which I yeah. said to you. Uh, this is a, a cookbook that um, we are recommending. And uh, when it first came to me, I thought, geez, this is absolutely can't be real. So here, let me play a little of this, everybody. And uh, for those of you who are a little shy of explicit language, close your ears. Plug them up. Here you go. At my age, I should know better. 
I try and do the best I can to manage things like my high cholesterol, but nothing ever seemed to work. So I went to see my doctor, and he told me I might be suffering from a condition that affects lots of people today, not giving a fuck about what I eat. That's when I found out about the Thug Kitchen Cookbook. It's full of delicious plant-based recipes that really inspired me to get my shit together, start eating some real fucking food. And now, I'm feeling better than ever. Who are you? I remember a time when I thought my kids got enough nutrition from that prepackaged bullshit I'd buy at the store. <laughs> I was such a lazy fucking asshole. Now that I've got the Thug Kitchen Cookbook, I don't play that shit anymore. I love to cook good food, but who has the fucking time to hunt down a dozen exotic ingredients just to eat better? Not at my age. Thug Kitchen helps me cut through the bullshit with language that I can understand. If you or someone you love suffers from chronic drive through dinners, meat sweats, gut rot, sugar shakes, or just want to get your shit together, see if the Thug Kitchen cookbook is right for you. Thug Kitchen is not for everyone including people who might be offended by words like ass, shit, fuck, or motherfucker. Some side effects may include feeling better, looking fly as fuck, saving some goddamn money, and in some cases, increased culinary competence that could lead to becoming a skilled son of a bitch in the kitchen. So find out today if the Thug Kitchen Cookbook is right for you. You'll be fucking glad you did. <laughs> it's a little out there, right? Uh, but... Uh... Actually, the actual... So I, I thought this was just a complete joke. And then they said, no, it's not a joke. And they you know, led me to the Thug, the Thug Kitchen Cookbook, which is this is the trailer for. And, um, and then I went to the site, which we'll put up on, on uh, Mind Rolling. Uh, we'll put the URL up. And I look through the cookbook and look at some of the recipes. They're great. <laughs> They're completely great. So um, this is our, our top recommendation this week for Amazon, the Thug Kitchen Cookbook. Mm. And go up there and get it. I have one other thing before you chime in um, that's a, a little bit more... Well, this was serious. It's a serious cookbook. Actually, it's a serious thing around um, stopping eating sugar and... Um, fast food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, did you hear, David, about this book, Dylan Goes Electric by Elijah Wald? It's it's no. a big book, illustrated, 354 pages. No. It's uh, Newport Seeger Dylan and the Night That Split the 60s. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah, about Newport? Yeah, about that night that he went electric and what uh, some of the r r truth about what really happened there. Um, I haven't read the book. I'm going to get the book. Um, it, it, it basically says, what a surprise this is. This splendid, colorful book, work of musicology. Oh, going to shut that off. Gee, they tell you to shut your phone off? God, you should have reminded me. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, who's, uh, he's written How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. Um, it allows him to approach Newport with a broad base of knowledge. He's perhaps best known. You know the mayor of McDougal Street, that uh, collaboration with Dave Van Ronk? That's, that's a great book as well. Um, and and it, 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 
just goes on to say he's a superb analyst of the events he describes, and in his, his analysis fly in the face of conventional wisdom. Even his introduction includes enough startling context to indicate Dylan Goes Electric will be seeing the old story with new line, new eyes. So oh, that's uh, good. Yeah. That's good. So this is uh, for music lovers like David and I. We love these music books, which we recommend a lot. Uh, and especially that was a that night at 1965 was definitely a marker and a huge uh, seminal change uh, that happened in, in in music, especially around what was going on with the folk thing. Maybe give it a little skeleton key to it, which is that. The Newport Folk Festival is the greatest folk and sometimes jazz festival. been going on for a long time. People like Pete Seeger and Phil Oakes and Dave Van Ronk were there. And Dylan was there. But that particular year, he came in with Fenders, electric guitars, and the most amazing music that had yet been made by a human being, in my opinion. And people were freaked. Uh, Pete Seeger tried, to, they say, I don't know what it says in the new book, but I, I think it says that Pete Seeger tried to have the amps turned off. He was so turned off by the music because he was a purist, you know, and had spent his life with the weavers and doing folk music about the river and, and, and politics and fascism and great, great, great stuff. And Seeger cannot be overestimated, but he hated that moment. Uh, it happened in England at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, which is a place I've been to, when Dylan performed there, that somebody a crowd yelled out traitor i think was the word because they were upset in england too that dylan had gone electric what they didn't realize was that dylan was a great rock and roll performer and um would go on to just knock everybody out with highway 61 revisited bringing it all home uh those great albums from the blonde on blonde they just yeah they just did a uh um at at Newport, Newport just took place the festival, and they did a bunch of different musicians got together in a tribute for that night, uh, for Dylan actually. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it, 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 great recommendation. I, 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 books like this really clear up history because maybe what I just said about P. Seeger was a complete nonsense because that's all I heard. You know, I wasn't there, but I was very interested at the time. And uh, this book may just uh, say that that did not happen because, you know, journalists and people, sometimes they just get it wrong, don't they? Yeah. It's nice yeah. to have a revision sometimes, as long as it's not revisionism to make some, to whitewash something. All right, let's okay. hear your recommendations, Dave. Okay. Uh, in complete contradiction to the Thug Cookbook, I have a very um, unhealthy recommendation, at least for some of us. Uh, and that is the, uh, on Amazon, look for Intelligentsia Coffee. Intelligentsia coffee, which is a very, very, very um, beloved strain of coffee from those who love coffee. And I've had it strong. There are about 10 different kinds of it. I'd recommend the House Blend. Uh, I was recommended this originally by the well-known Bhaktifest host, Shiva Baum, who loves it and has tried every flavor. And I've tried a few, and they're great. So look for Intelligentsia coffee. It's not that expensive. Another one that I want to recommend is the Jameson Acoustic Electric Guitar. Uh, I really want to recommend this to you, particularly you snobs out there who love, uh, you know, Gibsons and Martins and all of that and never see that there's another kind of guitar. Well, this is a very inexpensive guitar, as you'll find. And uh, I, I'm, I have one. I love it. You can plug it in and it plays like a great electric guitar, not like a Fender, but or Les Paul, but like an electrified acoustic, fantastic guitar. 
and it's quite inexpensive. I recommend it for anybody who wants a new guitar or cheaper guitar. Are you getting one? I have one, yeah. You have one of these? Yeah, I do. I really? Do. It's blue, and it's, it's quite beautiful to look at, but that's not why I bought it. I bought it because of recommendations. Some of the reviews on Amazon are very useful. And people take it very seriously. Musicians in particular take it seriously. So quite a few musicians who'd, who had, you know, $1,500 Gibsons and so forth uh, said that this guitar ranks with the best. And it does. It, it stays in tune, even in the humid weather, because I tune, I tune it pretty much every day, but I don't have to. Maybe a little sharp, a little flat here and there. Fantastic guitar. Really recommend it. Why can't you play a song for us on Mind Rolling one day? Well, I'm, I'm learning a song, which I will play. Okay. In about two or three years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's D to G to A is basically what it is. I and see. I do know those chords, yeah. but I haven't quite got the song down yet. And, I, you know, this is a cliche at this point, but I really want to recommend it because I'm reading it again. Grist for the Mill, Ram Dass's book from 1976, which is a collection of his, um, his lectures at that time. And what is most astonishing about this raga that just blows me away is that what... Uh, our great friend and teacher Ram Dass was saying in 76 is no different uh, than what he's saying now, except it's obviously an evolved um, version of it now. But he was talking about roles then and the conventional wisdom of who we think we are and who we try to be. And his, his tone in the lectures is very firm, even a little stern at times, not his usual humorous stuff. It's about really getting to the point. And he talks about spiritual materialism in the same way that Trungpa talked about it and his own life. But less about him, you know, it's less anecdotal about him, but about advice in the journey on the path. And I highly recommend this book. There's a new version of it out with a wonderful picture on the cover. It's about $12. And I cannot recommend it enough. It's, you know, after all these years, after 40 years of knowing about this book and having read it back then, I still think that it's penetrating incredibly useful to all of us. So I recommend that book, Grist for the Mill. Yeah, just published earlier this, republished earlier this year by Harper One. Uh, we did that, and it has a beautiful cover. And we have posters of that cover at ramdas.org yeah. store, by the way. Uh, it's really a manual how to be here now. That's really what it is, and that's yeah. what it was designed for. So great. Onward and forward. I have a thing that I want to talk about, Dave. It's an article that I found called The Dangers of Happiness. Okay, when, when I first looked at it, or I saw the title, I thought, what the heck could they be talking about? The Dangers of Happiness. There's so much, you know, uh, second to mindfulness, which we'll talk about uh, also a little bit later. It's... Uh, the big cliche of our uh, culture, you know, happiness, happiness. Uh, and in this article, uh, it, it's, it's interesting, Dave. He goes through all of the different uh, perspectives on happiness uh, through history, uh, back to the birth of the Western civilization, and as many accounts do it, in ancient Greece, where Aristotle said happiness consisted of being a good person. The happy life, the Greeks called eudaimonia. Do you ever hear that? Oh, no. Oh, there's a word for you. Eudaimonia was one of uh, lived, a life lived ethically, guided by reason, and dedicated to cultivating one's virtues. 
Then after that, the Epicureans came along, right? Remember the Epicureans? This is like going through a college course. Uh, happiness, uh, connect happiness to pleasure, right? Uh, but, uh, and they argue that a good life should be devoted to whatever brought pleasure. But they weren't hedonists, right? It was a strict regulation of desire. Uh, so to be happy, Epicurus himself said he needed no more than a barley cake and some water, okay, <laughs> just like us. Um, then the Stoics, you remember the Stoics? Yes. The Stoics <laughs> gave no elevated status, status to pleasure, ar- arguing that a person had the capacity to be happy no matter how daunting and painful the circumstances. Oh, yes, Stoics. My dad was a little bit of a stoic, I think, until he met Maharaji. Uh, Much later, and here's the big piece, Christianity, as preached and practiced throughout the Middle Ages, shunned pleasure altogether and regarded pain as the more useful path to, if not a happy life, then a sort of divine union in the afterlife, right? So next we have the Renaissance, isn't this great? <laughs> Going through the whole little, little history lesson. Uh, Renaissance, they, it brought happiness from heaven back to earth. But it wasn't until the Enlightenment period, all these periods, it became a right, something that each and every person was able to pursue and attain. And that's when America, right, was birthed, when Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence that the pursuit of happiness was an unalienable right. He did not just intend to say that man should pursue pleasure, but that he should also have the right to acquire and possess property. And of course, that got a little murky then in the South, maybe, back then. Um, Contrary to the message of Christianity, according to which we abandon ourselves to achieve divine union, we are now asked to pursue union with ourselves, to be happy in a time when we prize authenticity and narcissism. (laughs) We need to express our true inner self, get in touch with our deeper feelings, and follow the path set by ourselves. We're far from Epicureans who were famously reluctant to engage engage in physical activity. Today, Happiness is worshiping our bodies, building them up through running, boot camps, triathlons, and kettlebells swinging. Uh, yeah, this is, this is who we are. This is our pursuit of happiness today. And um, we are assumed to find happiness through work and by being productive. And here's where the whole thing takes a wild aim at what's going on politically. So this whole thing, this is what he's talking about, the dangers of happiness. Uh, When no sin is greater than being unemployed and no vice more despised than laziness, happiness comes only to those who work hard, have the right attitude, and struggle for self-improvement. Be real, be strong, be productive, and don't rely on other people to achieve these goals because your fate is in your own hands. They are, as Jeb Bush might claim, not working hard enough. It's drummed into the un- here you say, it's drummed into the unemployed and poor who are led to believe their misfortunes are symptoms of their inferior attitudes and inability to take over- ownership over their lives. And that's when Jeb said, because they're not working hard enough. 
Of course, David did say well, something. Well, you know, I, I you know, uh, a la Donald Trump, I would say the media destroyed Jeb's real statement, which goes on to say that what he was really saying was, let's stop encouraging these part-time jobs that earn nothing and so that we can work a full week and earn a decent wage. He did go on to say that, in all fairness to him, and he didn't in any way imply that, um, you know, people are not working hard enough because they're lazy or they're welfare mothers or something. He was just saying that the propagation of, uh, of McDonald's-type jobs was probably not a good thing for either the people or the economy. Now, because he's a conservative and a Republican, he probably does believe that there's a, you know, a segment of the population that is lazy. But um, to give him his due, he didn't really mean that, um, you know, that people are lazy and should, and should work harder. Uh, I'm mixed about this because I know that when I work, I'm happier. Um, you know, uh, when I'm actually, I have an aim and I fulfill it in some way, uh, I'm usually like a happier camper, you know. Uh, but I do not believe that um, work is the criterion for happiness. It just so happens in my particular case that, uh, you know, achieving something that is difficult and challenging and maybe useful to other people it really makes me happy. So that's a personal thing. But America, you know, around the world is known as the country where people work harder than anywhere else, particularly in France and England, where that is not considered to be the, uh, you know, the sort of pinnacle of achievement. You know, August doesn't exist in France for work. You just simply, you know, find your wine and cheese and and, and go to the Loire Valley and, and, and laze around. And in England, uh, the work ethic has been in question for hundreds of years. Uh, and America is really known as a place where, you know, the, the, the great country was built by hard work. We, we then, of course, forget that much of that work was done by slaves um, in the 19th century and 18th century. And so that particular rap is very um, bankrupt mm. because the, the, the plantation owners weren't known for sweating in the fields. You know, they were known for drinking a lot of bourbon while the, the black people from Africa sweated in the fields. Uh, you know, so it's, there's a lot of hypocrisy in this. Yeah. But, you, you, but the, the other thing, <clears throat> the question is the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson, who I think was a pretty smart person, had his failings, but, you know, uh, we all do. Uh, was it such a bad thing to put that into a constitution? I don't think so, but it got perverted by industrialism and, and consumerism, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I read in the paper this morning that people who are poor love Donald Trump more than people who are sort of comfortable because they love rich people with gold houses and gold glasses and gold cars and gold teeth. And that's because of the ethos that lies behind consumerism, which is if you've succeeded in, in, in acquiring a huge amount of stuff, you are really a happier person. And I would not be one to deny that if you have a certain comfort in your life, you probably are happier. But whether you need um, uh, that place that Trump has in Florida, which is made of gold, where people go, um, you know, uh, whether that helps, uh, obviously, to me, that's just complete fucking nonsense because pretty soon you're going to get ill and die and none of that is going to go with you and have you spent your time on furniture 
or on practicing what you're going to do when you no longer have this thing called the body. Mm. Well, he um, so <laughs> no. in so in this he talks about that happiness. That was a long interruption. I'm sorry, but it was an interruption. No, w- uh, happiness becomes a Trojan horse used to normalize inequality and oppression. Poor yeah. people may be then sent to happiness courses to improve their attitudes or assigned personal life coaches, as Paul Ryan once proposed in his bizarre anti-poverty plan. <laughs> okay. And so so this article is certainly about how that concept is used uh, to really, um, as he says here, as a Trojan horse, to normalize inequality. And that's what the gist of this article about is about. And, and when I... So I had a completely different idea when I looked at the headline of The Dangers of Happiness. And then, of course, when I read it, and, uh, you know, it says, beware the politics of contentment. <laughs> I mean, it's really, uh, you know, he ends this thing, says, oh, by the way, this is by uh, Carl Cedarstrom, and he's an associate professor of organization studies at Stockholm University. Uh-huh. And he's the co-author of The Wellness Syndrome. Uh, and he, oh, and here's really interesting, and Dead Man Walking with Peter Fleming, which My was, I made that great movie. That was a, yeah, I didn't read the book, but the movie was great. Amazing movie, yeah. 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 Uh, so be wary when politicians suggest that happiness be made the ultimate aim for society. We should remember that they are probably not talking about happiness. They're talking about ideology, their own political agendas in disguise. And I truly believe that that is a, a substantial statement, um, again, from our friends on the right. So, But, Dave, yeah, here's the... We're going to turn this whole thing around because, as I said, I thought this was about what true happiness is, right? And it wasn't. So I thought, now, a good friend of ours wrote a book called Real Happiness, and it was centered around meditation and awareness. And I'm going to read to you this one little piece about... um, her definition of happiness, okay? Who, who wrote this? Sharon Salzberg. Oh, Sharon. Yeah. oh, good. Real abiding happiness, we discover, isn't the result of getting our needs met temporarily. That often leads to an endless cycle of disappointment and escalating desire. The things we pin our hopes on don't prove to be enough. The bar is continually being raised. And then we're on the lookout for something more. Conventional happiness, the consolation of momentary distraction, is not only transitory, it can be isolating, shot through with an undercurrent of fear. Even when things are going well, we have the nagging feeling in the midst of our pleasure that our well-being is fragile, unstable, in need of protection. And the way we're most likely to protect it is to cut ourselves off from compassionately acknowledging the world's suffering and from our own, because we feel that doing so will undermine or destroy our fragile happiness. But in that state of guarded isolation, we can't experience real joy. 
Only when we acknowledge all aspects of our life's experience can we be truly happy. Real happiness depends on what we do with our attention. Key. That is our key word there. When we train our attention through meditation, we connect to ourselves, to our own true experience, and then we connect to others. The simple act of being completely attentive and present to another person is an act of love, and it fosters unshakable well-being. It is happiness that isn't bound to a particular situation, happiness that can withstand change. That's what real happiness is. And um, I, I'm so happy that I came upon this, this article, The Dangers of Happiness, that made me think of Sharon's book and, uh, and go to it to get uh, a real edification of that word and how it, it can really, uh, it, it really uh, sends a message because people talk about, well, why should I meditate? You know, why it's too hard to keep up with. We're, we're running a course right now um, that's just finishing on ramdas.org on mindfulness and meditation. And, and I'm getting a lot of feedback and questions. And, and uh, you know, most of them, are, a lot of them are around the difficulties. I can't keep my mind to one point. And I'm subject to the whims of my emotional darkness and so on and so forth. And, uh, and people do want to be happy, true hap truly happy. And I think that uh, Sharon is really... Uh, by the way, this book is Real Happiness, uh, The Power of Meditation. It also has a CD in it with the, uh, where she leads different meditations. It's a 28-day program, um, and uh, uh, that's also available on Amazon, I'm sure. So um, I think that the last line, it's happiness that isn't bound to a particular situation, happiness that can withstand change. I think that is key for all of us. And, uh, and also this thing around attention. I myself, Dave, have tons of problems around the act of being completely attentive and present to another person and how that's an act of love. We talked about that. I think we quoted someone a long time ago on a podcast about how giving attention to a person is the most generous act that you can do in your life. And I, because of my... You know, I pride myself on being a, a great multitasker and, you know, I do so many different kinds of things and it falls down for me when I am just needing to just completely be here for another person and not wander and, and particularly in, um, in my relationship with my wife, Saraswati. We go through but, that all the time where I... It's all relative, you know, because, I mean, I, I don't know. I, you, you can say that about yourself, but I know people who are incapable of any attention of another person, married or not. So it is relative, you know. I mean, I, well, I don't think that you're such a bad case, um, really. But, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about this amazing woman that I know... I'm going to send a shout out to because I think she listens. It's called Erin Coriel. And Erin uh, works with the dying and people who are in hospices and so forth and has for a long time. And she talks about it on Facebook sometimes. She very rarely puts a post on Facebook that isn't about this. 
And when you see her face next to her statements, you see how happy a woman she really is. And when you meet her, which I have several times, fortunately, you're just overwhelmed by her overbrimming sweetness, happiness, humor, perspective, non-pontificating, non-judgmental person. She sounds like an angel. She is. And she works with the dying, which is the thing that 99.9% recurring of people avoid like the fucking plague. Like, please don't talk to me about dead people. Don't show me dead people. I don't want to know. And that is seva, service, when you're dealing with dead people, or dying people, rather. And the happiness that comes from that kind of service is kind of hard to grok until you do it. That, that's certainly been my experience, that I can be very um, self-absorbed and something of an egomaniac, and at least in my opinion, and but never as happy as when something goes on whereby you can be of aid to people, be it through a podcast or through just meeting someone uh, in a restaurant who's got some problem and you want to help with them or and you can, whatever. It sounds very self-righteous. But the, to me, the interesting dichotomy is between Sharon's statement, which is similar you know, to His Holiness's statement, which is that we, it is about happiness. He says everybody wants to be happy. That's what... Dalai Lama says, not a dummy, not a superficial thinker, um, the deepest of all imaginable thinkers on this planet. And he says happiness is central. Because if we're not happy, why are we here? We, are we here to be unhappy, like the Puritans said? I mean, to me, a lot of the real disturbing aspects of the right wing in this country are reincarnations or, or entrails from Puritanism, which you mentioned in your in your lecture about the history of concepts of happiness that in the 17th century the the um, governor William Bradford and those people who ran the early part of this country were Puritans and they really didn't like people being happy and sex was something you did in a dark room with a woman with a dark dress on and you with a dark pair of pants on and you sort of did it quickly and then ran out and hoped that a baby would come or you would go to the sixth ring of Dante's hell. And that kind of Puritanism, which, which obviated all concepts of happiness, was an obvious nightmare and had nothing to do with, you know, natural-born living. So, I mean, it goes back to the golden mean, another Buddhist thought, which is that you can be happy without being over-smashingly indulgent. I mean... I, I, I think that I indulge. I, I like a, a good cup of coffee and and a, a great, well-done omelette. And uh, I, I've enjoyed riding in a Lamborghini. And I love going to um, movies and seeing terrifically made movies. That's all about happiness. I mean, even though some of the movies are, are dark and might tell you a lot about suffering, uh, the actual process of seeing a movie is, is, is happy. And seeing one's children uh, running around and alive and well and not being shot at by terrorists um, makes you happy. Yeah, that's a big happy right there. Yeah, but I, I want to go back because you're talking certainly about temporal happiness and just, you know, we're human and, and all of those things of enjoyment are natural to us. But uh, I think the, the core of what you said about what really can make someone happy is when they do something for somebody else, when they give attention, as she said, to somebody else, when they're out of their own self-involvement and uh, their life has their 
a, a focus that's not just self-interest, obviously. And I, I think that that's a big way for people. Uh, that's true happiness. And, uh, and through meditative practice of learning who we are, that can be a, a great source of happiness and a way for us to, and leads me to the, this other uh, article that we found in the, in the uh, New Yorker. Was it the New Yorker? I think so. Yeah, but, but before you do that, I want people to notice yeah. that on these 120 podcasts that we've done, Raga has found approximately 120 articles, and I found none. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, I just wanted to get that out. That's because... not true. The last time we did something, you found some article in, in Shambhala's Sun or something. Remember? Oh, did... yeah. oh right. You know, right. You're not a complete zero. Close. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but there, there was one thing... Um, there, this this article is about um, basically it's about this one particular man, who uh, his name is um, Puddicombe. Puddicombe. This is some kind. He's from Great Britain. Where do they get names like this? You have a good name, David Silver, but this yeah, but mine is about as English as as, as you know Barack yeah. Obama. I mean, my original name was Zilberglatt. That was my grandfather's what? name. What? It's a German name. This is a new thing, everybody at Mind Rolling. Yes. You know, Dave's Zilber, real name. Silver Glatt. Jesus. And, uh, that was my, so is he called Whittycomb? Is that it? No, he's called Andy Puddycomb. Puddy. Puddy. Like it's your Puddy. It's Whitcomb Fair. It's a song. But these, song, these names actually come from Middle and Old English. A lot of them come from uh, the 14th and 13th century Chaucer's time. And when, you know, all of those things, you asked me, I'm going to tell you. Yeah, you tell me. <laughs> the vocabulary and the words and the naming came from this marvelous mixture of, of Anglo-Saxon original Latin Roman, because the British were invaded and, and, and totally captured by the Romans, and by the Vikings. So you have a mixture of Nordic, Roman, Latin, Anglo-Saxon, and then when the Normans con conquered England, William the Conqueror in 1066, French. So that's why Shakespeare was so great. By the time of the 16th and the 17th century, the, the language had become gigantic, gigantically augmented by these different immigrant words coming in, and that's where all the names came from. So thank you very much. Send me a check. All right. So see, the things you learn when you bring something up with Dave. Forget about it. Who else could do that? Nobody. Um, so basically, uh, this article centers around Puddycomb. I just love that name. Um, who was, and this is what you got to do folks. He was a Tibetan. He trained as a Buddhist monk, a Tibetan monk. And then he created an iPhone app called Headspace. So we're giving a call out for, I, I took a look at it. It's, it's got some pretty good stuff. Um, it's all centered around him. He teaches, uh, all the med meditation and uh, mindfulness techniques and uh, and this thing's been downloaded by three million people okay so it's a not a nothing again go train as a Tibetan monk and start an app and you'll do quite well and this would be called uh, <laughs> the third metric a combination of well-being wisdom wonder and giving and this is uh, under that particular title and some of its acolytes are Richard Branson Richards into this he's put it on his virgin uh, on you can get on the plane and get one of Puddycomb's mm. uh, meditations mm. and of course uh, who else gets in here is Ariana Huffington um, she she uh, 
she is all about correcting a problem she had perceived in herself about being completely harried striver. Are you a harried striver? Well, then you need Puttycomb's Hitspace app. So this is, again, more about the commercialization of mindfulness. We've talked about this ad nauseum. And this is a really great article, though, uh, and because it, it, it's a little like this other article uh, that I read from, uh, quoted from, in that it gives a little bit of um, the history of how this came. That's what I loved about it. And it, it mentions yep. somebody, by the way, uh, we want to get on the webcast, Chad Meng Tan, who's a Google engineer who helped create Search Inside Yourself, a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence uh, system uh, that we, they teach to uh, thousands of the company's uh, employee. Um, it uh, it represents the fourth turning of the wheel of the Dharma. Eastern spirituality seasons much of our of today's techno utopianism. Okay, like HBO Silicon Valley. You know that show on HBO? I, I have seen it. I've yeah. seen it. Yeah, is it good? Uh, some people think it's marvelous. I reserve judgment. Okay, I, I find reserve it a little mean. I find it a little mean spirited for uh -huh. my taste. I but don't. apparently, there's a CEO who consults a guru and says things like, "I don't want yeah. to live in a world where someone else makes the world a better place than we do." What kind yeah. of crap is that? I mean, it's really beyond anything. Um, so, but then it goes on to uh, the um, kind of defining what meditation is and and how it came about into the West and of course popularized popularized in '68 when the Beatles took up transcendental. Remember TM meditation? And um, did you do TM meditation? I did. I, I did. I, I was initiated by the Maharishi himself. Oh, for God. I think you mentioned that before. He had, again, one upmanship. No, 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 no. I mean, you asked me, I'm telling you. I did it at Logan Airport. There's film of me doing it. I did it for my TV show. I was the first uh, American-based journalist to, um, to meet him and interview him. So they were very Jesus, kind to me. Really? He was a twinkly guy. He was a twinkly little guy. Do you remember your mantra i do have you told anyone what it is no in all these years august of 68 not one time have you mentioned this mantra and you're not supposed to tell anybody right no you're not now i did forget it for 25 years oh <laughs> okay so i got a, a mantra by a lower echelon teacher okay oh. and my, i'm going to tell you my mantra all right okay i'll go to hell for this my mantra was Hainamo, which was supposed to be a, a, a Sanskrit beach mantra, you know. Hainamo, mm. Hainamo, Hainamo. I kept doing it. You know what happened? I would do it. My girlfriend and I would, would do it in a spare room that we had next to our apartment. Uh, and um, so we'd do that and jump around for a little bit. And within about 48 seconds, we were having sex. That was my I introduction. Uh, I it's terrible, but the truth. I knew it. Okay, then I go to India and everything. I think I've mentioned this before, but we've done so many damn podcasts, you can't remember. Um, I go to India and I meet Hanuman, right? Right. The, the, the monkey god who like, becomes a huge part of my life. And then I realize, Hanumo. No, Hanuman, Hanuman. That was it. Yes. That's my mantra. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, for... <laughs> Isn't that interesting, though, that there was some precognition going on there? Yeah. That's pretty far out, actually. I never thought of it that way. 
Um, yeah. I hope I don't get any letters from uh, TM, uh, well, which does a lot of good work, by the way. Without TM, I wouldn't have actually um, probably started meditating so young. So I'm very grateful to them, actually. Personally. Yeah. And but then um, really that the mindfulness, the technique du jour derives from Buddhist practices. Right. So that's really where all this basis is. Instead of focusing on a mantra, you pay attention to bodily sensation and the breath. And by doing this regularly, practitioners say you begin to cultivate an attentive, non-judgmental mindset, mindfulness that can be applied to activities beyond meditation, which I'm telling people who are doing this course, when you really get into the regularity of a daily practice, it informs the rest of your day, which is absolutely true. Um, so, and there's one, so one of the main people to, um, to really bring this mindfulness movement over here is uh, John Kabat-Zinn. And John, ah, yes. yeah, a long time, 64, I believe it says um, he uh, he started his meditation practice daily and he developed an eight-week program called Mindfulness Best Stre Based Stress Reduction to help patients at the university hospital. So, um, But uh, one interesting thing before we even get to them, and this is where I love this article because it talks about, uh, for most of Buddhism's history, however, meditation wasn't actually practiced that much outside of monasteries. Do you know that? Interesting. I didn't really, not really know that. Oh. There's an expression in Burmese Buddhism, a thousand lives away. Buddhists generally believe that the world was so corrupt that the average person couldn't hope to attain enlightenment in a single lifetime. Monks were on a spiritual fast track, so meditation was great for them, but ordinary people focused on praying and making donations to monasteries in the hope of increasing their karma and being reborn as more spiritual beings, which is totally what goes on now, I mean, in India, which I'm very familiar with. Um, mm. That changed in the late 19th century when the British invaded Burma, all right? And a monk, Lady Sayadaw, uh, he traveled the country encouraging people to study complicated philosophical texts and to try meditation for themselves. Guess who his successor was? Of course, you know, S.N. Goenka. And Goenka was our teacher in India back in the day, the creator of Vipassana. Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and Jack Kornfield directly brought that over to America. They, they would probably, and it's, they're not mentioned in this article, which really pissed me off because they're seminal to this mindfulness movement, really. So then they talk about John, and, and there's, so this brings me full circle to what Sharon was talking about and developing attention and, and knowing oneself through meditation but um, and being comfortable with change. Those are uh, the important things. And John says that mindfulness teaches people to find new ways to be in a relationship to their pain. That is crucial. And that is really what uh, is so, so difficult. Uh, I mean, if you think of it on the most uh, um, obvious stuff, like you get sick, and, you know, it's so hard not to succumb to... Uh, I mean, I've been having some trouble lately, uh, and uh, I see myself how I've occasionally succumbed to feeling sorry for myself. How did I get this uh, little thing that I'm going through, or whatever it may be? And um, 
and see the dark moods take over. Meditation, and fortunately, I've been doing it a long time, and, and I'm able to not stay in that place very long. And, and I can get conscious. And, but meditation, absolutely, and mindfulness, it allows you to find a new relationship with, with, with pain. So I think that's a, a, a terrifically important uh, quality that, uh, that and, and, John And that is what, what, you know, even the most shallow sort of um, technique teachers of this still emphasize that it is, you know, catching up with your own reality and... Um, you know, it, it can't do any harm, you know. I mean, if, if Richard Branson uh, has incorporated it in some ways into Virgin Corporation, I don't see that it can do any... Uh, actually, I, I remember a situation where Richard Branson did a really nice thing. A friend of mine uh, was seriously unemployed and um, was in a restaurant bar in Manhattan. It's about three or four years ago, and that's all. And um, saw Richard Branson alone at the bar having a beer hmm. and simply went up to him and sat next to him. She was an attractive woman, but that's not germane to this. And said, I, I've always been an admirer of yours and, and, and I, I just wanted to say hello. And they talked for about half an hour. And then he simply said to her, call this number tomorrow and you will get a job at Virgin. Wow. And she did do that the next day, and he had left a note for this uh, middle management person, and she was employed within 10 days. And, 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 and she told me, I said, but was he in any way predatory or anything? No, absolutely not. He was, in, in fact, he was waiting for someone, and he was kind of, the person was late, and he had some time. And he looked me straight in the eyes. He said, there's no reason why you should be an unemployed. I can help you, and did. So, wow. you know, that's a beautiful thing for someone to do. Hmm. Uh, to take pay attention, you know, like that. So I, I'm assuming that, that that runs through his company. I must say, when I used to fly Virgin Airlines, uh, I enjoyed it more than most flights. And when Virgin Records was in Times Square, it was the only place I would go to when Tower Records died. So Branson did some stuff. I don't want to trivialize this, though. But um, no, no, and I think that that that's all humanizing stuff is humanizing, is yeah. really important. And uh, and the fact that he. He's doing what he's doing. I mean, somebody gets on that plane, never thought about meditation in their lives, hits the channel and goes, yeah, I wonder what this is. Maybe it'll calm me down because I'm uptight about flying. And then suddenly something else happens. I guess what we're talking about is uh, the, the dialectic is here. And, and again, we've we've gone over this uh, quite a few times, It's it's but it's worth pursuing. Med this guy, uh, Ray Diallo, Dalio, wrote... Um, uh, it was part of an article, Meditation, the Art of Investment. All right. This guy uh, of the $170 billion hedge fund he has, he says, meditation more than anything in my life was the biggest ingredient for whatever success I've had. Okay. That's the statement that we talk about. Then a Buddhist scholar, David uh, McMahon, says, Mindfulness doesn't quite work that way. You are supposed to be mindful of something, like the teachings of the Buddha. The teachings of the Buddha are not always warm and fuzzy, nor would they play well at a corporate retreat. The most important precept, after all, is the universal truth of suffering. And in, in this article, this article ends with uh, Padikam, Padikam, <laughs> 
saying, um, <laughs> I, I can't stop. I don't know. Um, the, um, in terms of exercising and his monastic training, he's kind of renamed some of this stuff that he learned, uh, in, in that tradition. Um, and the f- appreciation, change, cause and effect. The final one sounds bleak when you do the Tibetan translation. It's the truth of suffering. So what did Padikam say? He smiled. I changed it to acceptance. So mm. that, that's kind of a crucial thing right there. And then right. it's okay. I think it's okay because there obviously... That has to be an ingredient when when you're when we are dealing with our day to day suffering. Certainly, acceptance is a key word. Surrender in the bhakti tradition would be even uh, a more key word. Uh, so, um, mindfulness and meditation are only two of eight lifestyle choices that the Buddha instructed his followers to practice, and this, to me, is the most important thing. In order to break free from the cycle of cycling of suffering and rebirth. And it's the eightfold path, right? Right understanding, right motivation, right livelihood, right action, right speak, speech, right effort. To pluck some things from the list while ignoring others strikes many Buddhists as absurd. It would be as if somebody went to the Catholic Church and said, I don't buy all this stuff about Jesus and God, but I really dig this communion ritual. <laughs> would you teach me just how to do that bit? Oh, and I want to start a company marketing wafers. So um, <laughs> that that is the dialectic, and uh, and again, I'm uh, as David and I have both said before, nothing but uh, nothing but good can come out of whatever way people use mindfulness, and even to the point if it's 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 an ingredient for the biggest success that they've had. Hopefully, it'll lead people a little bit deeper into the practice and a little bit, because without these other ingredients of, you know, investigating right motivation, right action, not not hurting people, speak right speech, uh, right effort, right livelihood, uh, not doing anything that harms people. Uh, without those other aspects, it's very difficult to uh, develop uh, compassion. Which is what uh, his holiness. We did that fantastic podcast with Tupton Jinpa, right, on his book on compassion, and um, and it's what his holiness talks about all the time: kindness and compassion, and yeah, that's me. the true measure of of uh, of, of of success. Uh, I read something yesterday, Raghu, by His Holiness, which was about mindfulness when you're doing a job like making bombs to kill people. It was by Dalai Lama. And it was, he said that within the bubble of that, you can be mindful that you're a genius and you're doing your job well and you're, you're, you know, your family is paid for and everything. But meanwhile, you're making bombs. And that's where the eightfold path yeah. is yeah. so important yeah. because the right livelihood includes right action. You can't sort of go, okay, well, you know, it's like Oppenheimer when he basically invented the atomic bomb. And Einstein, who was the precursor to Oppenheimer in the progression of understanding how to use enriched uranium to make the atomic weapon, uh, they both expressed incredible regret, despite the fact that Oppenheimer quoted the Bhagavad Gita in, in his pursuit of this. 
uh, they both were very upset about what they had set into motion because they're geniuses and they were both geniuses. Yeah. No one can deny that. Oppenheimer was an astonishing human being. But uh, he knew, he knew that he was doing something very bizarre by creating this thing that they eventually dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, um, you know, so His Holiness made this point that to be in the bubble of achievement that you've achieved through mindfulness or the meditation or whatever else to other technique you've used to become a brilliant bomb maker, sorry, 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 but it it it, it doesn't. It, it, the corollary of that is is violence, murder, and and some terrible stuff. So, you know, yeah, what you were saying is right. You can't take these eight things and cut out three of them and go, yeah. okay, well, I just like the taste of the wafer. And by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna market wafers. You can't do that. I mean, I, I'm saying you can't do that. Who am I to say that? Well, that's the way I would prefer to live myself. Mm. Actually, that brings us to a close, and at thank this you. point, wait, don't go anywhere yet. Thank you. We, oh, no, I'm oh thank, thank you. Oh, I thought you were thanking me, and you were getting off the air. No, far right. be. All right, thank yous. And you'll, uh, if you recognize anybody, you can do a shout-out. Barry Goldberg, Ethan Cherry, Anita Gregory, Rick Friars. Do you know Rick? Yeah. Rick and Char. They're our buddies. Kevin, that doesn't mean that everybody else we don't know isn't our uh, friends as well, by the way. But, you know, we see somebody. Kevin McCloskey, Scott Hughes, Ariba Stature. What a name. Eh? Beautiful. Richard P. Brown III, Carlo Dangiv, Stephanie Davis, Chandler Moss. Chandler Moss is, uh, I didn't realize, Chandler, thank you. He's out there working with, uh, as a, uh, a, a, a Ram, at Ram Dass's house right now, Chandler is. Mm-hmm. Allison Lerman, Stan Bar- Baranowski, Lauren Taylor, Amanda Wagner, Derek McCollum, Adam Mozonson. And please excuse me on pronunciations. I'm doing my best. Mary Lambeth Moore, Earl Avril, Nancy Lytle, Chris Haskins, John Fanuff. John, thank John. you. John is our uh, um, film guy for the retreats. Mike McCabe, Joseph White, Jennifer O'Collin, Adrian Spiridellis, Robert Hayes, Nicole Grollo, uh, Peter White, Jane Evans. Do you know Jane Evans? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I do. Thank you. Peter Goldsmith. These are two of D- David's best friends. Zach Leary, another great friend is uh, of ours. Stacia Trask, Kristen Rogers, Andrea Walker. Oh, oh, Stacia Trask. Yeah, yeah. You know Stacia? Well, well, she has a first name, isn't it? There. Stacia Trask is oh, all. Stacey. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. She's a great food uh, symbologist. Oh. Try, try and work that one out. Yeah. She's, a, she's a terrific chef, too. Huh. <laughs> Kristen Rogers, Andrea Walker, John Crew, Davy Hale, a good friend of ours as well. Adam Bazell, Eric Strange, Cynthia Bromfield, Mary Jo Hood, H. Nelson, Messick, Jonathan Lewis, Maureen, Terry, Ananda, love you. And here's somebody that I know really well, more than anyone in the whole world, Sham Marcus. He's my son. Yay. Phil mm. Burns. Hi, Phil. Thank you. Andrea Joy Nusenow. Cheryl Kronkowski. Uh, Jill Nusenow. Mary Godchuk. Thank you, Mary, for everything you do aside from this for ramdas.org. Uh, Suzanne Malice. Suzanne and Marty are good friends here in Thank Asheville. You. Rosemary DeCrosse. Luke Jones. 
And here is somebody also closest person to me in the world, Saraswati Marcus. Imagine, she was the first donor. Diana Berman, Brenda Butcher, Rob McHugh, uh, Bill Vasios, Laurie Pinkleton, Shannon Baird, David Stephen Lee, uh, George Pohl, uh, and Deanne Burns, Ellen Olansky, uh, Drew Dow, uh, Gabriel Rodriguez, and Brian Chalmers. Thank you, everybody. Brian Chalmers? Mm-hmm. He's great. Oh. He writes great things on on uh, Facebook uh, mind rolling. So thank you, Brad. But we thank everybody just because we know you doesn't mean we're thanking you. We we love you all because you've shown some generosity to us, which is fantastic. Thank yeah. you. I mean, this whole thing, everybody, with Indiegogo and the kind of support we got really gave us such a boost. Uh, not just the finances that we we're able to do some of the things we needed to do and get some help, uh, but also just the um, the depth of which... Uh, the, we got this feeling of com- of caring about what we're doing. You know, sometimes you're in a little bit of a void, so that meant uh, quite a bit to us. Mm-hmm. I know David and I, especially because uh, this all started out of our little mind rolling podcast, and uh, look where we are now. So, um, but please continue. As we said, we w- this is something that now that we have more of an infrastructure, we need to uh, continue to uh, support pay people who are supporting what we're doing and uh, that's a continuation of that not to mention that just so you know everything that we do all of the podcasters this gets all split up amongst all of us between the MindPod network people the podcasters the individual podcasters and so this goes a long way uh, and what we're hoping is that this support will go a long way to support uh, these teachers most especially because uh, they are forced to, not forced, that's a terrible thing to say. They travel a lot, though, and they, uh, they need to, uh, I would love to see them get this kind of uh, um, income to supplement what uh, they do from their teaching because it will make their lives a lot easier. So uh, please go to mindpodnetwork.com. Whoever you like, you can, you know, you can give directly to that person and that gets split up uh, with MindPod or, or you can just go to MindPod, which gets it split up with everybody. Um, so uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And David, we will see you next week on okay. Mind Rolling Podcast. Yeah.